I'm Zoe Bisbing, and this is the Full Bloom Podcast, where we're nurturing a more embodied and inclusive next generation. In many ways, the Full Bloom Project was founded on an idealistic mission to put therapists, particularly eating disorder therapists, out of business. After all, if fewer people were burdened by body hatred, shame, low self-worth, and the anxiety and depression that results from the pervasive, unrealistic appearance ideals in our culture, surely I'd have fewer patients. Of course, my desire to put myself out of business is only partially true. I actually love being a therapist and particularly enjoy working in the relatively niche field of eating disorder treatment. It's not a popular specialty to choose, and as a result, there are often limited treatment options. So good news for specialists whose practices are often busting at the seams, but quite dismal for the majority of individuals and families who need good specialized care but can't access it. So today, I'm dedicating a whole episode to everything you need to know about eating disorders, which are very real, can be very deadly, but can also be really hard to detect, especially in our own kids. I want all of you and all of the people in your lives to not just know about eating disorders, but I want you to know where you can access help. While my practice can only serve therapy clients in New York State, my guest today, Dr. Erin Parks, has a far wider reach. She's the co-founder of Equip, an innovative telehealth platform which is making gold standard eating disorder treatment for young people and their families truly accessible. Erin partnered with me for an incredibly thorough Eating Disorders 101 And between the two of us, we guarantee that if you or your kid need specialized care, we can absolutely help. Erin, go for it. The first eating disorders. I think most of us, myself included, before I got into the field, I thought eating disorder and Karen Carpenter, and now I think Demi Lovato. And that's kind of what I know. Now that I'm in the field, I know that eating disorders is an umbrella term, and there's five, six different diagnoses that fall under it. Some people would argue that there's a lot in common or not a lot in common with these different diagnoses. Because this is psychology, there's a ton of acronyms. It's like we can't get through a sentence without using an acronym. So we'll try to break them down. So the first one is ARFID, which is A-R-F-I-D. It stands for Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder just call it ARFID. I used to say it's kind of like picky eating gone awry, but because nothing's simple, there's really almost three different types of ARFID. So what we sometimes see, these are the parents that are going to their pediatricians when their kid is five, six, seven, saying like, my kid's eating is off. They're they're picky eaters. The pediatrician says, oh, don't worry. Like all kids are picky eaters. They'll grow out of it. And these are the kids that don't grow out of it. So some of them are picky eaters because they truly have a limited palate. They can't handle the textures of some food or the tastes of some food. And we end up seeing a child at 10 or 11 that's only really eating five or six foods. Maybe they ate French fries, but only if you get them from McDonald's. Or maybe they're still eating mainly like applesauce and cheese sticks and oatmeal. And it's hard to go to a restaurant because there's nothing there that they want to eat. 
So that's one type of ARFID. Another type that we see is just having really low hunger cues. So this is like all the kids are playing in the cul-de-sac and you like yell pizza's here and all the kids come running, but one of them's like, eh, I'm not that hungry. They're never that hungry. And after eating usually only a small amount, they start having body sensations. Like maybe their body feels full, maybe their stomach feels crampy. These are kids that sometimes end up spending a year or more getting GI workups done. Like there must be an organic reason why they're not hungry. And then the third group of ARFID are kids who have a phobia. So they're afraid of vomiting or they're afraid of choking. And so they're limiting how much they eat or what types of foods they eat. So maybe they only eat packaged foods or they only drink liquid because they're afraid of choking on solid food. With all three of these types of ARFIDs, you rarely see kids lose weight. Instead, you see kids fall off their growth curve. So when they're nine years old, they weigh the exact same amount as when they're six or seven. This tends to get diagnosed a lot later than the symptoms start because so many kids, mine included, I've got two, I've got a seven and a nine-year-old, all kids are picky eaters. So it's hard to know like what's normal and what's not normal. And I think that's kind of how I can sum up all of parenting is constantly laying in bed thinking normal, not normal, normal, not normal. <laughs> that's um, how I fall asleep as well. Normal, not normal, normal, normal not, not normal, but workable. Not normal. Can we accept that? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and so, so that's ARFID. Uh, one of the things with ARFID is that we certainly do see 30-year-olds with ARFID who their entire life, they've been misunderstood. Everyone thinks they have anorexia, but it's not that. Um, so that's a new diagnosis. It's been around forever, but didn't become a diagnosis till 2016. So one type of eating disorders, park in that, and we're going to talk about the next one. Next one is anorexia. Typically in anorexia, people are not consuming enough calories relative to how many calories they burn. People get here in different ways though. For some people, they intentionally want to lose weight. So they start either restricting the variety of foods they eat. So maybe they eliminate sugar, or they eliminate gluten, or they eliminate quote unquote junk food, or they continue to eat a variety, but limit the quantity of what they eat. Sometimes though, we see people that don't want to lose weight. They just want to eat healthier air quotes around the healthy for sure. Eat clean. There's another set of air quotes. And by accident, they start losing weight because the amount of calories they consume is different than the amount of calories they're burning. And then we see a lot of people who kind of fall into anorexia. I see this with a lot of males playing any aquatic sports, swimming. Out in California, we have water polo, something that we definitely did not have in Minnesota where I grew up. Mm -hmm. And they're burning so many calories and they end up losing weight. So we know that sometimes just the act of becoming underweight for your body type can almost induce an eating disorder and can increase anxiety and depression along with it. I want to just chime in to make, and you maybe we're already going to do it, but because you lined us up alphabetically, ARFID and anorexia, and there are distinctions that I know you'll talk about, you can see, even just in listening so far, how a kid that's presenting with ARFID, who's not able to eat enough, not because of fear of weight gain or any of those things, but genuinely because of their avoidance or sensory difficulties, if they start losing weight, that lack of energy balance can kick them into anorexia. And even though that's not how the story started, Perhaps you'll talk more about it. I know we talked about it when we talked with uh, Dr. Bulick about just the genetic component of it and how losing weight can be the gateway, not even intentionally, like the aquatic athletes that you're talking about. Yes. So then the psychological profile of the rumination around food or, or even weight preoccupation can develop, even though that's not how it started. So you could see the path from ARFID to anorexia. 
Exactly. I'm glad that you called that out. And in general, I think that's one of the m- biggest misconceptions in our society that people have to like want to look like an Instagram model or be terrified about being fat in order to develop anorexia. And that's that's not true. My favorite study is the Minnesota male starvation study, not just because I'm from Minnesota. Briefly, this was beginning of World War II, a bunch of uh, healthy men did not want to participate in the draft. And so the government said, great, you don't have to go participate in the draft, but will you be part of this research study? And they systematically starved these men because they wanted to find out what's the best way to refeed someone following a period of starvation. They had to end the study early because as the men lost weight, they got more anxious, they got more depressed, and they developed eating disorder symptoms. So we see people who went through a stressful divorce um, and lost weight or who went through chemotherapy and lost weight and end up developing eating disorder symptoms and need to go through eating disorder treatment. Just because I like to connect the dots for, for listeners, we have to remember too the genetic, and we'll talk about this with risk factors, but the genetic risk. So you might have one of those genetic risk factors for this, but not, not develop an eating disorder. But then, like you were saying, kind of for a life event happens, your weight drops, not intentionally, but that can kind of activate that genetic risk. And okay. so, you know, you're, I think this is a really helpful way of not just orienting folks to eating disorders because they can also Google what are the eating disorders and find them on NIDA or something. But I think that it's helpful to sort of connect the dots and sort of identify how certain, not domino effect, but kind of, right? Mm-hmm. How you yeah. just sort of house of cards. I'm not sure which one fits better, but all right, keep going. Yes. Okay. So anorexia and ARFID, you're often going to see people who appear underweight. Now, I also want to park for everybody that you can have anorexia and be at an average body weight. And the reason for that is that there really is no average. The same way that we're all supposed to be different heights, we're all supposed to be different weights. When I was working in an inpatient unit, and Zoe, I know you worked in an inpatient unit as well, so you might have seen a lot of this too. I would say that sometimes half the unit was completely average weight. And they would say to me, they're teenagers or, or young you know, preteens. And they'd like, Aaron, this is not fair. I am the same height and the same weight as my best friend, Sarah. And she doesn't have to be in the hospital. It's not fair that I'm here. But the person that I was talking to used to be at a higher weight. And while they lost weight to what you know a BMI chart might say is average or healthy, it wasn't healthy for their body and it weakened their heart. So I think if people take nothing else away. It's that you can't tell by looking who has an eating disorder. And when I say that, people are like, oh yeah, you're right. Cause a binge eating disorder and bulimia. I'm like, no, you can't tell by looking who even has anorexia. I recently recorded an episode where we shine a light on quote, atypical anorexia and talk about exactly what you're saying and how even folks in larger bodies could be struggling with anorexia. So yeah, absolutely. Good moment to hover. So we've gone through the A's. The next two are bulimia and binge eating disorder. So you can think of eating disorders as containing behaviors. So in anorexia, we often see restricting eating less than your body needs. Bulimia and binge eating disorder, we both see periods of eating more than your body needs in one setting. That being said, restriction is also a symptom of bulimia and binge eating disorder. So most people have tried a fad or a crash diet and they will notice that it didn't work. And I like to think about it instead with thirst. So I tell people like, okay, I'm going to give you $200, but you can't consume any beverages for three days. And they're like, I can totally do that. 
But at some point, your bio, like our brain doesn't care at all if we're happy. Our brain cares that we stay alive, right? So at some point, your brain is going to override the desire for that $200 or $2 million. And it's going to override anything you've put in your environment. And it's going to force you to drink water because you're going to be so thirsty. The same is true when we deprive our body of fuel or calories. And so most people who struggle with bulimia or binge eating disorder will restrict. They'll go 8, 10, 12, 16 hours without eating. And their body will say, dude, I want you to survive. Here's eat food. And then they'll end up eating more in one sitting than they typically would do. With both binge eating disorder and bulimia, that's usually followed by a period of guilt and shame. For people who struggle with bulimia, they then engage in what we call a compensatory behavior, which can be excessive exercising. It can be purging or vomiting. It can be taking laxatives. I'd say the most common thing I see though, or most of us see is vomiting. And this ties into another core aspect of eating disorders, which is emotion dysregulation. So sometimes when people hear people make themselves vomit, oh my gosh, I could never do that. Well, I'm sure you do things that other people also would be like, oh my gosh, I'd never do that. So let's just, you know, cool it on the judginess. It's not like one symptom is worse or better than the other. Most people who I meet who have eating disorders have this tremendous gift and capacity to feel. They are the ones that would make outstanding teachers because they can empathize with their students or amazing actors because they can embody other people's emotions um, or really great therapists, which is probably why there's a lot of people in this field who've experienced an eating disorder. But they experience their emotions often at a louder volume than the rest of us. So I shouldn't say the rest of us. I experience emotions at a very loud, very, very loud (laughs) volume. Um, So something happens to them and they feel sadness and another human being would feel sadness in the same situation, but they feel like a 10 out of 10 sadness instead of a volume of a five. And this just for, to connect a dot, this is what we might refer to as a deeply feeling person, a deeply feeling child, which we, when we talk about in other episodes, we really want to make room for that to be okay. That to just be like a different type of character trait, a different type of way of being, a different type of being human. But in our society and a lot of families, that's not always welcome or normalized. Yes. Yes. And it's, it's been interesting as a deeply feeling child, I've become a deeply feeling adult, but now I'm getting to raise children with really big emotions. And it's, it's been really healing in a way to raise kids with big emotions and get to approach my parents did an outstanding job, but also get to approach it with my new lens, especially of, of the skills to think about emotions in a new way. For everyone listening, if you can think about a time when you felt 10 out of 10 sad, your whole body is sad or your whole body is feeling guilt. You want to stop feeling that way because it feels crappy. Can I say crappy, right? <laughs> it feels yeah. really bad. <laughs> yeah. It feels really bad. And if you cut yourself, you'll instantly feel better. You'll numb out real quick. If you have a tantrum, you'll feel better a lot faster. You do some drugs, you'll feel better. If you steal something, shoplifting usually makes you feel better really quick. But also vomiting, purging really makes you feel better really quickly. And then sometimes binge eating will also help you to feel better eating a lot at once. And so all of these behaviors serve a purpose. And so as we move now to talk about what is the treatment for eating disorders, what we're thinking about is how can we find something that serves the purpose of helping the emotions become a little bit lower? They can still be sad or guilty, but not to the point that they are want to crawl outside of their skin. 
so that they don't have to go to their behaviors of binging, purging, restricting, tantruming, self-harming. So that was my long blurb on what are eating disorders. No, I mean, I, I think I might, it was a wonderful, it was a wonderful blurb. I might add that though it's not in the DSM, that orthorexia is something that we want to be on the lookout for. And we've dedicated episodes here to the perils of quote, clean eating, healthy eating and identified orthorexia. But I wonder if before we jump to treatment, if we could just sort of run through, maybe even starting with the orthorexia profile, what do parents want to be on the lookout for? Like, how might you increase your radar? And similarly, what are some of the telltale signs that something's up and maybe you do need treatment? Yes. Since all of the eating disorders involve a level of restriction, one of the things to look at is your child changing first the variety of food that they eat. Did they used to always love ice cream and now they'll never have it? Did they used to eat breakfast and lunch and now you're watching them eat nothing all day long and just eating at night? So if you see the range of food that they're eating, if you could see my hands, I'm making a triangle that slowly gets narrower and narrower. So if they're eliminating food groups, Um, If they're not eating things they used to, if they're eating less frequently, smaller meals, smaller snacks, going periods of time without eating, those could all be a really good sign to look out for. Another one to look out for is if they are changing where they're at on their growth curve. If your child's always been in the 85th percentile for height and weight, and now they're in the 50th percentile, that's not necessarily a good thing. That should trigger like something's going on here. People shouldn't change where they're at on the growth curve. So certainly if they're losing weight for young kids, if they are failing to gain weight, so they're not staying on their growth curve. And then one last thing is the amount of time they spend thinking about food. And this usually is a kind of a safe way to ask your children about it because understandably they tend, there's sometimes shame or there's secrecy that goes around with changing your eating behaviors. So what I like to say to children, teens, and even adults is, okay, on a scale of one to 10, 10 being all the time when you're awake and one being almost never, how much time are you spending thinking about your body? And a lot of the people I work with say eight, nine, 10. And then I ask, how much time do you want to spend thinking about your body? And that's usually when I hear anything between a one and a five. And then I say, okay, same, same question. How much time do you spend thinking about food? And I hear an eight or nine, a 10, particularly with orthorexia. And how much time do you want to spend thinking about food? And that's when I hear a number more like one, two, three. And so if there's a discrepancy between how much time you are spending thinking about something and how much time you want to be thinking about it, that is an excellent sign that your child has an eating disorder. And that's the reason we do treatment. Because at the end of the day, as long as someone's healthy, we don't really care that much about what someone weighs, but we care about them having the peace of mind that their brain isn't monopolized by thoughts of food or their body so that they have room in their brain for joy and excitement and other emotions. Yeah. And using, as we say here, like those resources that they do have to make meaningful contributions to the world, to live their values and to fully bloom, as we like to say here, I'll add to that list If your kid is disappearing to the bathroom after meals, I mean, sometimes, and this is, I get it as a parent, you're busy, you've got other children running around, but if your kid is disappearing to the bathroom after meals, it's fair to be concerned. 
Yes. I mean, I'm not or showers. Yeah. Showers. showers after a meal too. Yep. Totally. And I often hear from parents that, and I meet them typically in my practice anyway, by the time they actually are like, no, we're actually concerned. But sometimes I'll hear parents say, well, we didn't want to make a big deal about it. We didn't want to, you know, we, there's a kind of walking on eggshells around the behavior, especially if it's like a tween teen, like not wanting to get in their personal space, not wanting to assume there's a problem. And certainly my philosophy is always, if you see something, say something, because eating disorders thrive in secrecy, as you know, of course. And our kids, while they may present, don't talk to me, don't bother me, I'm busy, you know, essentially like taking care of myself this way, they need us to say, you need help and we're here for you. And I think that's a, a probably a good segue to how parents can, you know, engage in treatment with their kids. But I really want to dispel that myth that, you know, oh, we shouldn't say anything. We don't want to rock the boat because our kids desperately need us to say something. Right. And then not saying something, you're also accidentally communicating to them that you can't handle it or that they should feel shame about it. And that's not true at all. I think it would be really helpful to maybe practice with either a spouse or a best friend before saying something because you want to do it in a non-judgmental tone. Like, I noticed you're going to the bathroom after dinner and I'm concerned that you are vomiting after dinner. Um, Is that happening for you? Not like, I'm so worried. I'm so scared. Is it happening? Because your kids, even though sometimes it seems like they don't want to please you, they really do want to please us. They're going to tell you what you want to hear. No, mom, I'm not doing it. No, dad, I'm not doing it. Saying it in a really neutral way helps give them the space to say like, I can handle you telling me that you're vomiting. And and parents, as scary as that might feel to be like, oh my goodness, my child's telling me that they want to cut themselves or that they do cut themselves, that they want to kill themselves, that they vomit, that they think that they're fat. It breaks your heart as a parent to hear those things. But this is a kind of a place as a parent to have a little bit of a stiff upper lip to show your child like, I can handle this. I can mm-hmm. handle that things are hard for you because I also know we're going to be okay. Like, yeah. uh, we got this. Yeah. So definitely ask about it in a way that allows them to say, to say yes about it. Yes. Just before we move on, I thought of another one. If you see your kid playing with their food in funky ways, food play is important, interestingly enough, as a treatment in ARFID, but pushing food around ritualistic behavior around food that can crop up at the dinner table. And if you like with kind of to add to what you were saying about food restrictions. I want to flag that one too. Cause if you see like weird behavior with food at the table, that's also a bit of a flag. I think something that can be tricky for parents is when their child, maybe a very normal child who tends to eat beige food, right? And it's like, <laughs> oh, they've just spent the first 10, 12 years of their life really liking chicken fingers and chips and Oreos. And I could never get them to eat a vegetable. And now all of a sudden my child says, mom, I want to start eating healthy. And it's eager to want to celebrate that. And Absolutely. Be like, like they're just trying to get healthy. We got to go for a wide definition of healthy here. Healthy means eating a wide variety of foods. So we're not taking away those chips or the Oreos or the chicken fingers. We're just adding broccoli to the meal. So basically your kids shouldn't diet, period. Okay. So let's jump into treatment. treatment. Yes. The evidence-based treatment for children, adolescents, and young adults with eating disorders is called family-based treatment, which gets abbreviated as FBT. It used to be called the Maudsley method and still is in some places because it came out of this hospital in London called the Maudsley Hospital. 
I really strongly dislike the name FBT or family-based treatment because it's so unbranded. Mm -hmm. So I meet so many people who are like, well, I've done FBT before and it didn't work, or I did family treatment before and it didn't work. So just because you've done family treatment didn't mean that you did the family-based treatment for eating disorders. So super confusing with the name. What it means is that we're taking the people in the household who do not have an eating disorder and putting them in charge of making it difficult for their child to act on an eating disorder. Sometimes it's easiest to first think about it with alcohol. So if you thought that your 15-year-old was struggling with alcohol, struggling with drinking, when your 15-year-old goes to soccer practice, you should go in their room and look in the closet and look under the mattress and try, see if there's any alcohol and throw it away so that it's difficult for them to act on their urge to drink. Same thing is true if your child has an eating disorder. They are going to have an urge to restrict, an urge to binge, an urge to purge. They're going to have these urges. And the urges aren't going to go away overnight. But what can go away is acting on the behaviors. And it's your job as the healthy people in the home to make it difficult to act on the behaviors. The longer they go without acting on the behaviors, then the urges will start decreasing. I sometimes hear parents say, well, here, let me give an example of how you can help this happen. So let's say your child is struggling with bulimia and they're purging after meals. Should also note that sometimes people with binge eating disorders, some people, times people with anorexia, they also purge, they also vomit. So think of it as an eating disorder behavior, doesn't matter what the exact diagnosis is. So if you think your child is sometimes vomiting, then make it a family rule. After we're done with dinner, unlimited screen time. You just need to be where I can see you. No going to your room after dinner, no taking a shower after dinner. Make it difficult for them to vomit after a meal. And sometimes I hear parents say, oh, we've been doing this for a week and they still want to vomit. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, they've probably been vomiting for maybe even a year or two years. Who knows how long they've been doing this? Of course, the urge is still there. It's going to take some time for them to stop having the urge. The important thing is they're not able to act on it. And so you got to keep it up. Now, kids really often should eat three to six times per day closer to the six times than the three times. So maybe three meals and two to three snacks a day. But that means they need supervision three to six times per day. So this is where we really ask people to draw in their village. It's hard as one person to supervise five or six meals per day. So maybe at school lunch, this is having the meet with the school nurse. Maybe this is one parent doing breakfast and another parent doing the after-school snack if it's a two-parent home. Maybe this is asking a neighbor to come over um, because you're not going to be home from work for a few hours after they get home from school to be with them. So figuring out how we can bring in a village to help support them. I'm just going to add to that. If you're listening and maybe you are suspecting your child and you're thinking about what Erin is describing, this strategic planning happens under the guidance of a physician and a lead therapist, whether you're in treatment with Equip or me or, you know, anybody else that we would never expect a parent to kind of listen to this episode and be like, okay, and then who do I, who, what, what meal again? And how do I, this is, she's describing the way the treatment would unfold with guidance from a mental health professional. Exactly. Yes. And it's um, it's hard work. I want to briefly talk about anorexia and to an extent ARFID as well when you have to weight restore. If your child needs to restore weight, if they've fallen off their growth curve, if they've lost weight, it is incredibly important that the first thing we do is restore the weight. 
Same thing is true if your child is binging or purging. We need to first stop those behaviors. So those things happening, they're messing with our bodies. First, they could be making us physically unhealthy. Eating disorders are the second deadliest mental health illness. It can cause problems for all aspects of your body when you're messing with your food intake. The next reason, though, is that messing with your food intake, being underweight for your body, purging, all of these things also increase anxiety and depression and make it harder to recover. So we have to prioritize stopping these eating disorder behaviors and having weight restoration if you're underweight. I would say 99% of parents will say to me, okay, can't we first get them to like, let's do therapy so that they want to eat and then I'll feed them. And I get it. I would want that too. That's not how it's going to work. We're not going to be able to convince your child to want to do homework and then they'll do homework. Nope. You just, you got to do the homework and this is harder, but this is what they have to do. So when we're thinking about weight restoration, we want to see at least one pound per week of weight gain. It's good to prioritize going fast. And a lot of families say, like, can't we just take it slow? If your child has 20 pounds to gain and you're going to gain a half a pound a week, that's going to take 40 weeks, almost an entire year to get weight restored. And your child doesn't get relief halfway through it. That's the worst part. It's like, think of it like a staircase. It is hard and it is exhausting, and it makes you feel crummy all the way until you're at the top of the staircase. So you can either take the stairs one step at a time, or you can take them two steps at a time, right? But you got to get to the top. And your treatment team is here to help you figure out how. One of the cruelties of eating disorders when you're underweight is oftentimes your body uses fuel inefficiently. Researchers aren't entirely sure why this happens. It has a fancy word. You become hypermetabolic. But what it means is that a lot of our kids eat 3,000 calories or 4,000 calories per day just to gain one pound per week. So as a parent or an adult in the household, you're tasked with this kind of Herculean effort of not just feeding someone who doesn't want to eat, but feeding them double what you're probably feeding them before. And that's where you really need a full team. You need a physician to make sure that you're doing everything in a safe way and that your child stays safe. You need a therapist to help you as a parent through the emotional distress of stressing out your child. It's tough to tolerate. None of us like to see our kid upset, certainly not upset five times, six times a day. Dietitians can be really helpful for meal planning. I have no idea how to cook. My kids eat mostly things that come out of a toaster oven. (laughs) Um, If I had to feed my children... 3,000, 4,000 calories a day, I would need help with meal planning, a grocery list, even just ideas. So for instance, maybe your family has tacos every Tuesday, getting the idea of like, okay, add cream cheese, add avocado or guacamole. What can we do to take what they're already eating and make it more calorically dense? I'm going to pause there for a second because I know you, Zoe, this is what you do for a living. So I'm sure you have some ideas as well. Well, I mean, as I heard you saying it, I was just thinking about how if you have a kid that needs this, again, that would be diagnosed, assessed, recommended, and they don't look like what you think anorexia looks like, that can be a real mind fuck. (laughs) Like that can be confusing, you know? It's one thing to do this, like you said, this Herculean task, and I love how you're naming how functionally... I was going to say impossible, but it's not because I've seen parents rally and do it, but how it can feel impossible. I remember when I worked on an inpatient unit, the meal plans that would come up, I, it was like Michael Phelps's meal plans yes. being fed to a malnourished 12-year-old girl. 
and she could barely gain the weight because of the hypermetabolic state that you're talking about. So I'm just sort of shining a light on how hard this is and then how extra hard it would be if you're not even getting the visual cue that my kid needs this, right? If your kid is growing fur on their arms and losing their hair and is really visibly falling apart because they're essentially dying and you need to save their life. Sometimes that can be helpful because then we can get the kind of brain. It's more, uh, just makes sense more. My kid is dying. I need to help them. But I really want everyone to hear what Aaron is saying. These diseases can be lethal and they can be lethal and really impair quality of life for people that literally present fat. I mean, the same thing can be true. So I just want to make it very clear that this treatment, our children are deserving of this type of treatment, regardless of what they look like and whether or not they meet the stereotypical visual. And I'm empathizing with how hard that is for our brains, because in a way our brains need cues. We need in a way Mm -hmm. to see a malnourished child to be like, they need my help. And that's not fair because this is a mental illness. Well, and the other thing that's just really awful for parents is not only are your eyes maybe not seeing it, you're going to have a very well-meaning sister and neighbor and sometimes even a pediatrician saying like, oh, way to go. Your child lost so much weight. They look fantastic. And that really messes with you as well. They're like, like, but trust your gut. You know that your child is miserable that they're not meant to be this quote unquote average size. They've always been at the 80th percentile or 90th percentile. Like they're not supposed to be here and they're miserable, right? All of us as parents, we don't care at all what our kids like look like. We want them to be healthy and we want them to be happy. And they are not healthy and happy even if the coach and the teacher and your mother are all congratulating you on your child's right. weight loss, which is just another whole kind of effed up thing about our culture. Indeed, I'm right. sure you've talked about it. We, we have, <laughs> but this is, I think, a, a, I wanted to connect that dot, but I also really want to center this on all kinds of eating disorders, including the ones that look exactly like we imagined they would. And I'm glad that we're normalizing how hard the recovery road is for parents, how much it takes But I want to maybe kind of wrap up by emphasizing how incredible the role of the parent can be and how, why I practice family-based treatment, why I believe in it is that even if a parent has contributed to the risk factors, let's, and this is, again, I always remind Mm -hmm. people we, parents do not cause eating disorders. It's a multifactorial kind of thing. And we don't even fully know, right? Like why somebody develops and somebody doesn't. But parents, whether or not they've contributed to risk, can be superheroes here and can really help in partnership with the team, can really make magic happen and really get their kid out of the grip. And especially if we can intervene when our kids have been sick for less than three years, I always say. Mm-hmm. It's not to say that if they're sicker than longer than that, we, there's, it's hopeless. It's not true. But if we can get in there, that's early intervention. And that's where yeah. I want anybody listening to say, I think my kid might have a problem to know about equip. Cause it sounds like you have a little bit more uh, national <laughs> capacity yes. to practice and help folks. Um, and certainly we're always happy here to help connect people to the right people in your state. Yeah. I want to kind of dig into how amazing parents are not just to 
compliment myself now that I'm a parent, but it's (laughs) so stinking hard. And then you all just did this in a pandemic. On top of that, yes, there's a lot of non-intuitive things that you're doing. So for instance, your 16-year-old might have been pretty independent eating on their own. And now you're like taking over eating. There's going to be things that you're doing while you help your child that feel not developmentally normal. So at Equip, what we've really added to FBT is a family mentor and a peer mentor. So a family mentor is someone who's done this before. They've helped their child recover from an eating disorder. They've been in your shoes. And they're there to say, this is hard feeding your child this much every single day, or it's hard doing something while your mother and your sister are saying, ah, just don't worry about it. Like you're doing really hard work and it's going to pay off. And and keep going. They're also there though to help you deal with the guilt because all of us parents have guilt and we really shouldn't. We really, really shouldn't. And I can just tell you right now, you did not cause your child's eating disorder. And yep, you probably did some things to accidentally reinforce it. I'm just going to go to something completely different and, and less important, but my child's screen time. Both of my kids spend way too much time on their screen. And every time I don't end a meeting on time, I'm just like, here, just get on your tablet. Just like hand them their screen, right? I contribute all the, like, it's not there. It's, I contribute also to the fact that they spend way too much time on their screen. This is true for big and small things. We all live in the same family together. We all contribute to each other's successes and we all contribute to each other's bad habits. That's okay. There's nothing to feel guilty about there. It's now figuring out how are you going to adjust things so that you don't accidentally reinforce your child's eating disorder. So this might be you are asking your child about food and trying to help them eat dinner and they start yelling at you and say that they don't want to eat dinner and you're like, just fine, just go upstairs. Well, that's a normal thing to say. I understand why you're saying that. And that helps to accidentally reinforce the eating disorder. Now they know every time they swear at you at the dinner table, you'll tell them to just go upstairs and they don't have to eat dinner. So there's examples like that, that our family mentors are like, been there, done that, let me tell you the different things that we've tried to help make it so that it's impossible for the eating disorder to live in our house. That's actually a nice place to end, right? With this introduction of the uh, the existence of parent mentors. We had a parent mentor, Una, on our yes. podcast, who I know is connected yeah. with Equip, and I think she was eager for uh, Full Bloom to connect with you guys. And I think that parents can do this. Parents can observe problems. They can, they can call problems out. They can seek help and then they can get support. And I hope that we can be resources to those parents so that they can feel like they have what they need, right? Enough oxygen on them to really support their own kids yes. and get them the fuel that they need in order to yeah. bloom full. Bloom full. Well, I think this is a great place to end. I want to end with one thing that I say to, that comes up with all parents. Every parent who I talk to says, my kid doesn't want to do family therapy. They don't want me to be involved. And I say, great, because that would be really weird if your kid wanted you involved. 100% of teenagers don't want their parents involved. But then the parents say like, I'm afraid I'm going to do it wrong. I'm afraid I'm going to make it worse. Wouldn't it be better if I just let someone else fix them? Because I, I think I might be the problem. And for those of you who have had a child with an eating disorder who maybe went away for treatment and did well at the treatment center and then came home and got worse, you're really going to blame yourself. Like, well, they are fine there. It must be me. It's not you. It's not you. And it's important to keep them home so that they can build this life worth living and that together as a family, you can figure out how to kick the eating disorder out of the house. So hang in there. And thank you so much, Zoe, for inviting me to be on. 
Thank you for joining me. It, it was fun to get into the weeds of actual eating disorders and eating disorder treatment with you. And seriously, if anybody listening is like, I think my kid has a problem, let us know. Yeah, we're here to help. Yeah, we um, equip uh, service people nationally and we are here to help put together a team for you or connect you with someone in your community. Wonderful. Erin, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Have a great day, Zoe. You too. Bye. Bye. So that's today's show. As always, please, if you're enjoying the show, rate, review this episode on Apple Podcasts, share this episode so more people can join this body positive nurturing movement. Thank you all for listening and tune back in next time for more body positive nurturing wisdom.